1934, Orson Welles came to New York City as a member of a touring production of Romeo and Juliet. Juliet was played by stage legend Catherine Cornell. Romeo was played by Basil Rathbone, who was also making a name for himself in the movies, and would play Sherlock Holmes in a series of films in the late 1930s and 40s. Wells played the role of Tybalt in the production, which was impressive considering that he was still in his teens. Physically, Wells wasn't much to look at. He was on the heavy side and never physically graceful. But his voice, deep, resonant, and powerful, was what impressed reviewers. It was a voice that was perfectly suited for radio, and within a few months, Wells was taking parts on dozens of shows, making as much as $1,500 a week. On the radio, Wells impersonated historical figures, played a mysterious crime fighter, scared the nation to death on Halloween of 1938, and through innovative touches, took radio drama in a whole new direction. Throughout his career, Orson Welles made his name in the theater and in movies like Citizen Kane, Touch of Evil, and The Third Man. But radio always held a special place in his heart. It's the medium where he thought he did some of his best work, some of which we're going to listen to right now. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Thanks for coming to the Potluck. I'm David Inman. Orson Welles was born in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the son of an alcoholic inventor father and a mother who mixed music and politics. He began acting at age three and was precociously verbal. One story went that at age 18 months, Wells told the family doctor, the desire to take medicine is one of the greatest features which distinguishes man from animals. The same doctor became Wells's guardian after his parents died and sent the boy to an exclusive boys school just outside of Chicago where he indulged his love of drama by staging productions of such plays as Dr. Faustus and Julius Caesar. He wrote and produced his first radio drama at age 13, and when he graduated from the school three years later, he headed to Europe, where he acted in productions in Ireland. When he returned home to America, Wells joined the Catherine Cornell troupe and toured in Romeo and Juliet. He'd begun in the role of Mercutio, but had been demoted to the smaller part of Tybalt because of his offstage love of drinking and carousing. One of the people who saw Wells in Romeo and Juliet was John Hausman, just beginning his career as a producer. He was impressed by Wells, especially that voice, and approached him with a verse play called Panic about his tycoon in his 50s who goes broke in the Great Depression. Hausman wanted Wells to play the role, even though he was only 19. Panic ran just three nights, but it helped open the door to a radio career for Orson Welles. The March of Time. 
The March of Time was the closest thing to a national radio newscast in the 1930s. News gathering resources at most radio stations were meager, and newspapers and wire services saw radio as competition, so there was no collaboration. But Henry Luce, the publisher of Time magazine, saw radio as a way to help build the magazine's brand for free. A sponsor, like Wrigley's Gum or Electrolux Vacuum Cleaners, would pay for the show and help increase public awareness of Time. On the March of Time, news events were reenacted on the air with actors supplying the voices of the newsmakers. Art Carney got his start by impersonating President Franklin D. Roosevelt on the air, and Agnes Moorhead supplied the voice of First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. Wells appeared on the March of Time on March 22, 1935, in an excerpt from Panic. But it's what he did next that ensured his place on the program. There was to be another segment on the show that night, a piece about the famous Dion Quintuplets, who at that time were almost a year old. A special voice was needed, someone who could impersonate the jabbering and cooing of five babies. Wells stepped up and did the deed, and the show's producers were impressed with his versatility. A year later, they brought him back, and for a few months, he became a regular. Here he is in a 1936 broadcast as a British military officer. Who's that tall fellow over there? Who's he want? He's one of the Arab leaders, General Allenby. Doesn't quite understand your position. Thinks he ought to talk to you. Shall I send him away? Oh, by no means. I'd speak with him. Have him come over here. Chevrolet Count Jupiter, Wendy. Art thou the great king who has conquered this holy city of Jerusalem for the Christians? I am commander of the troops who have occupied Jerusalem, yes. Wilt thou cast down our Muslim shrines and drive out all before thee who are not Christians of thy faith? Tell your people that I shall protect the shrines of the Muslims and of all faiths in Jerusalem. Then indeed we are fallen into the hands of a just man. On the March of Time, Wells impersonated Sigmund Freud, columnist H.L. Mencken, Ethiopian leader Haile Selassie, and actor Charles Lawton, among others. Years later, he would tell Peter Bogdanovich, It was a marvelous show to do, great fun, because half an hour after something happened, we'd be acting it out with music and sound effects and actors. It was a super show, terribly entertaining. I began as an occasional performer, because they had a regular stock company, and then I was finally let in, one of the inner circle. Meanwhile, Wells's theatrical career, in collaboration with John Hausman, was also picking up, first as part of the Federal Theater Project. Hausman was working for an offshoot called the Negro Theater, located in Harlem, and he and Wells produced an all-black version of Macbeth, set in Haiti and replacing the black magic of the witches in the original with voodoo. By this point, Wells was all of 20 years old, directing a major production while taking radio parts whenever and wherever he could find them. And another opportunity popped up, again, at the March of Time. Wells would later say, I had the greatest thrill of my life. I don't know why it thrilled me. It does still to think of it now. I guess because I thought March of Time was such a great thing to be on. One day they did a news item on the March of Time on the opening of my production of The Black Macbeth, and I played myself on it. And that to me was the apotheosis of my career. 
that I was on March of Time acting and as a news item. I've never felt since that I've had it made as much as I did that one afternoon. Wells and Hausman followed the success of The Black Macbeth by starting their own wing of the Federal Theater, incorporating magic into a production of Dr. Faustus, and producing farces like Horse Eats Hat. The money Wells was making in radio helped make these productions possible. The government was funding the theater, but Wells always wanted to add expensive scenery and special effects that the budget wouldn't cover, so he pitched in. In the summer of 1937, Wells and Hausman planned to stage a left-wing opera for the Federal Theater called The Cradle Will Rock, which defended, organized labor, and savagely attacked capitalism. Some conservative politicians in Washington didn't like the idea of the government funding such a play. So as a result, the Federal Theater's budget was slashed, and the premiere of the show was postponed. The theater was padlocked. So on what was supposed to be opening night, June 16th, the cast and crew of the show, accompanied by 600 audience members, marched to an empty theater nearby. Composer Mark Blitzstein performed his score on a piano. The performers couldn't appear on stage because of union rules, so they played their roles standing in the aisles. It was an historic evening of theater, and Orson Welles was making a name for himself. In August, he and Hausman announced the formation of the Mercury Theater, and their first production would be Julius Caesar in modern dress, business suits and military uniforms that echoed those worn by the Nazis. That same summer, Wells staged a multi-part production of Les Miserables for radio. To get the most realistic sound effects to represent the sewers of Paris, he set up a microphone in the studio washroom. Everything was going perfectly until someone flushed a toilet. It not only ruined the illusion, but it was the first flush ever heard on the air. Wells's next radio project began that fall. played the lead role in the crime melodrama The Shadow, long a popular hero in pulp fiction magazines. The Shadow was the secret identity of a playboy named Lamont Cranston. He had spent years in the Orient learning the secret of how to cloud men's minds and make himself invisible in order to confound evildoers. Here's a scene from the first episode with Wells as Cranston and Agnes Moorhead as his companion Margot Lane. All right, Margot, won't you sit down? I told Albo to serve our coffee here in the library, unless you'd rather go on the terrace. No, I prefer it here. Then I'd see you smile. That frown is most unbecoming. Lamont, give it up. Give what up, my dear? Drinking coffee? I'm serious, Lamont Cranston. When I foolishly let you know that... Do you remember what you said? It will be exactly five years next week. But there's still so much to do, Margot. Well, then let somebody else do it. Don't you realize that you can't keep on like this forever? Someone's certain to identify you, and when that someone does, someone else is certain to kill you. Perhaps, but until they do... Oh, darling, 
stop frowning. I don't mean necessarily to give up your work, Lamont, but this other. Let the shadow just disappear and, and come out openly. Join the organized forces of law and police. Won't you realize, Margot, that my entire usefulness to the organized forces of law and police lies in my remaining outside those forces, in remaining always the shadow. There was no question that Wells's voice made the shadow something special. Here's another scene from the first episode. The shadow is trying to find evidence to keep an innocent man from going to the electric chair. I can't see you anymore. Where have you gone? Back into the shadow. Now, Gordon, we haven't much time. Listen to me. No crime is perfect. There's always somewhere a loose end. The only reason that all crimes aren't solved is because there's some one fact that someone knows and doesn't tell. And sometimes they don't tell because they don't know that they know. I told everything I know in court. They wouldn't believe me then. Because you couldn't prove what you said. We are going after the proof now. You and I. How? I'm going to think with your mind. I don't know what you mean. Don't try to understand. Just do as I tell you. I want you to concentrate, Gordon. Fix your mind on everything that happened that day. Make mental pictures. I'll see what you see. I'll try now. No. No, Gordon. Stop thinking about your wife and baby. How did you know I was thinking about that? I saw it. In your mind. I see in my mind the pictures you create in yours. Oh. Like television? Yes. Or like mental telepathy or mind reading, hypnotism, whatever you choose. There's no time to talk. Stop talking. Think. Wells never received formal billing as the shadow, but in the last episode of the season, he and Moorhead introduced themselves on the air. And now, ladies and gentlemen, that interesting message we promised you. The part of Lamont Cranston and the shadow has been played by one of the most distinguished figures in the theater today, Mr. Orson Welles, famous for his production of Shakespeare in Modern Dress, a director of the Mercury Theater, producer of Broadway hits like Julius Caesar and The Shoemaker's Holiday. Mr. Wells, still a very young man, is making for himself a unique place in the field of dramatic art. We have been indeed fortunate in having Mr. Wells on our shadow programs. Now I know all of you would like to hear a few words from Mr. Wells. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Words can hardly express my great enjoyment in doing this program for you. And now before I leave you, I want to thank our sponsors, Blue Coal, for giving me the opportunity of doing this show. I want to thank our cast for the wonderful work they've done throughout our entire season. And above all, I want to thank you, our listeners, for your loyalty. We all hope you've enjoyed listening to the shows as much as we have playing with it. You know, in the theater, we can see our audience. We're able to tell how well we're received by the applause we get. But unfortunately, we have no way of knowing how much you've enjoyed us over the air. Wait, Orson, may I make a suggestion? I certainly, Agnes Moorhead, or... Should I say Margot Lane? <laughs> there is a way. If you've enjoyed this program and would like to let Mr. Wells and all of us know about it, simply phone your nearest blue coal dealer and tell him so tomorrow morning. Tell him how much you've enjoyed the adventures of the shadow. A very fine idea, Agnes. And now, ladies and gentlemen, 
Good night. And goodbye. The Shadow was supposed to go off for the summer because it was sponsored by a coal company that advertised only during the winter months. But for the summer, another sponsor came along, the B.F. Goodrich Tire Company. And they liked The Shadow so much that Wells ended up doing the commercials. Ladies and gentlemen, there's danger ahead for The Shadow, and he's ready for the consequences. But who knows what danger lurks in your path as you roll along over a wet, glistening highway. The shadow knows today's high speeds, slippery oil-filmed roads, and quick-acting brakes all spell S-K-I-D. Is a treacherous car-spinning skid just around the corner for you? Or are you going to play safe? To fight this dangerous hazard that killed and injured thousands of motorists last year, to protect you in the hazard zone of motoring where a slippery film of water may make complete command of your car almost impossible, Goodrich has developed the new Safety Silvertown with the special skid protection of the Lifesaver Tread. This new development in Tread actually drives... In the summer of 1938, Wells was winding up his work on The Shadow, but he didn't leave radio. The theater company he and Hausman had created was now known as the Mercury Theater, and an hour-long radio show, the Mercury Theater on the Air, premiered on CBS. The company did innovative productions of classics like Dracula, Treasure Island, and Around the World in 80 Days. But the competition was tough. The show was up against the Chase and Sanborn Hour on NBC, hosted by ventriloquist Edgar Bergen and his dummy, Charlie McCarthy. Well, I, I would like to have you explain why all that racket happened downstairs in the sitting room last night. Uh, racket, Bergen? Yes. Oh, is that so? Yes. I heard a terrible racket, didn't you? Well, no. I guess I was so busy making it, I didn't listen. I didn't. <laughs> the Chase and Sanborn Hour was one of the most popular shows on the air. One of the reasons CBS had countered with the Mercury Theater was because nothing else seemed to work. Mercury Theater on the air was praised by the critics but the public still liked Charlie McCarthy a whole lot more than Orson Welles. And then came Sunday night, October 30th, 1938. The Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The Mercury Theater production was H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, but told in a unique radio-centric way in the form of news bulletins and on-the-spot reports that unfold as an alien force lands in New Jersey and makes its way toward New York City. We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, my aunt. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmer's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to 
keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! The whole field's caught up by the woods. The fires are gas heading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Many people tuning in late to the program came to the conclusion that the U.S. really was being invaded by aliens. There were reports of panic, especially on the East Coast, and Wells shrewdly fanned the flames of publicity, holding a news conference the next day where he apologized. Uh, were you aware of terror at the time you were giving this role? Were you aware that terror was going on throughout oh, the nation? Oh, no, of course not. Uh, we did Dracula, and uh, it seemed to me during Dracula I had high hopes that people would uh, react as they do in a movie uh, of that kind, and uh, uh, I don't know that they did particularly, and uh, so I'd given up. One doesn't believe in the radio audience much. You don't know that they're, that whether they're listening or not. You have no idea how many people are listening or what they're thinking. I had every hope that... Uh, that the people would be excited as they would be at a melodrama. As a result of War of the Worlds, two things happened. One was that Wells began talking to RKO Studios about doing movies in Hollywood. Another is that Mercury Theater on the air got a sponsor, Campbell Soups. And in December, the show's name was changed to Campbell Playhouse. By now, the original Mercury Theater was dead, done in by elaborate but unprofitable productions and by Wells's increasing absences while working on other projects. Campbell Playhouse ran until the spring of 1940, and by then Wells was in Hollywood working on Citizen Kane. He was only in his early 20s, and to be given so much responsibility by RKO occasioned quite a bit of jealous criticism among Hollywood regulars about the so-called boy wonder. Wells himself played along, on March 17, 1940, he appeared on the Jack Benny program and lampooned his image as a genius. Anyway, when Orson gets here... Oh, gosh, that must be him. Come in. Pardon me, has Mr. Wells arrived yet? No, not yet. I'm his secretary, Miss Wentworth. If you don't mind, I'll wait for him. Oh, no, no, come right in. Thank you. Oh, Mr. Harris, will you please show Miss Wentworth to a chair? Sure, park the chassis here, babe. <laughs> Phil, make yourself uh, comfortable, Miss Wentworth. Now, as I was saying, fellas, when Mr. Wells gets here, I don't want any heckling. Just behave yourselves while we're rehearsing. Well, what do you intend doing tonight, Jack? Goodbye, Mr. Chips? Oh, no, Don. We're going to work up to that gradually. Uh, first, he's going to teach me dramatic delivery and enunciation and how to breathe. Isn't that right, Miss Wentworth? I can hear you breathing way over here. I mean correctly. <laughs> you know, fellas, there's a way of breathing when you read lines that... Pardon me. Hello? Mr. Wells? Oh, he hasn't arrived yet, but I'll have him call you. Goodbye. Well. Who was that, Mr. Benny? It was 
Oh, darn it, I was so excited I forgot to ask. <laughs> well, you're our fine secretary. You're the secretary, not me. Well, then why did you answer the phone? Because it's my phone, that's why. I forgot to ask the man's name, so what? Mr. Wells won't like it. Look, Miss, don't worry about that. The party will probably call back again, and when they do, I'll... Come in. Excuse me, is this Studio B? Yes, sir. I was to meet Mr. Wells here. I'm Mr. Stone, his secretary. His secretary? Then who's Miss Wentworth? She's his private secretary. I'm right out in the open. (laughs) Oh. Oh, well, uh, come right in. Mr. Wells should be here any moment. Thank you. How do you do, Miss Wentworth? Good evening, Mr. Stone. Hmm. Gee, that Orson's a pretty busy guy, ain't he? Phil, I warned you about saying ain't. Oh, that's right. He's a pretty busy guy, am he not? <laughs> Just let it go, Phil. Now, Don, I wish that Mr. you Stone, and Mr. Stone, here's a script that Theodore Gill sent from New York. Thank you. And by the way, there was a phone call from Mr. Wells, but Mr. Benny failed to get the name. Oh, that's terrible. Well, I said I was excited, and I made a mistake. I'm sorry. Mr. Wells won't like it. <laughs> Nuts to Mr. Wells. <laughs> Gee, you'd think I'd murdered somebody. Now, now Don, gee... Now, Don, as I was saying, if you and Dennis would be... Now what? Come in. Pardon me, I'm looking for studio He isn't here yet. Have a seat. Good morning, Mr. Wells. Good evening, Mr. Wells. Good evening, Mr. Wells. Oh, oh, Orson! (laughs) Orson, come right in! Well, I sure was didn't know you there for a second. I, uh, well, I'm glad you were able to make it, Orson. I was wondering... Mr. You... Stone, did Gabriel send in those sketches, the costumes, the picture? We'll be needing them soon, you know. Yes, Mr. Wells. I received that script from the theater guild. Good, good. Let me see it. Here you are, sir. Hmm, looks like a very interesting play. <laughs> well... However, to finish the second act, we'll need polishing. Gee. Oh, Orson... Before we get started, I'd like to have you meet some of the members. Miss Wentworth, did you cable Mr. Miller about the American rights to his new production, the one that opened last week in London? Yes, I did, Mr. Wells. And by the way, just before you arrived, a phone call came for you. But Mr. Benny didn't get the name. Stool pigeon. (laughs) I, uh, I was excited, Orson. That's all right, Jack, but watch those things in the future. (laughs) Oh, I... Oh, I, I will. I will, yeah. Now, Orson, before we get started, I'd like to have you meet the members of my cast. Uh, this is our announcer, Don Wilson. How do you do, Mr. Wilson? It's a pleasure, I'm sure. And this is Dennis Day, our young tenor. Mr. Day? How do you do? Dennis, don't curtsy. <laughs> you know, he's so polite. <laughs> And, oh, yes, this is our orchestra leader, Phil Harris. Uh, good evening, Mr. Harris. Hi, Orson. Still scaring people? (laughs) When Wells came to Hollywood, he brought some radio friends with him, including Agnes Moorhead, Paul Stewart, and Ray Collins, all of whom would play significant roles in Citizen Kane and other films directed by Wells, including The Magnificent Ambersons. Wells' Hollywood career was just beginning, and his radio days were coming to an end. He never left the medium entirely. He did commercials for TV and radio into the 1970s, perhaps most famously for Paul Masson Wines. And then there was one infamous example where he threw a fit of temperament over the copy he'd been given for a radio spot about frozen peas. You could check it out on YouTube if you like. 
To me, it's sad and depressing, and I'd rather end on a happy note. So, the end. The Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck is written, researched, and narrated by me, David Inman. Thanks for listening. If you listen to us on iTunes, please consider subscribing to the show and also rating us. That helps other people find us. You can also find episodes on the Incredible Inman Facebook page or at IncredibleInman.com on the podcast page. See you later.